Point Audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in Genesis. For previous messages or to find out more about our church, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Pray with me. Father, I, I thank you for the truth that we just sang about, that we have the opportunity to come to the altar, Lord, and and know that because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us, that you're going to accept us. And that you don't see us, but you see Jesus Christ who covers us and covers our sin. And God, as we talk about the fall of man this morning and talk about the reality of sin that we live in, uh, this world that is so fallen and that, that we are so susceptible to fall prey to, God, I pray that you would... Give us wisdom as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit would fill all of us, Lord, and that we um, would be able to leave here knowing you more and living lives worthy of the calling that we've received, and that we would be holy and righteous and blameless in your sight, not because of who you are, but because of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, again, welcome to Stone Oak Bible. Glad to be here with you this morning as we continue our series in Genesis. And it is wonderful to be able to gather together as real people who live in a real world and that we come together and talk about our real God and who he is. And I don't think I would have to try hard to convince any of you this morning that the world that we live in is messed up, right? I mean, I think you all know that, that the world that we live in is is messed up, that there are real problems that we face in the world that are all around us. And I don't know if you're like me, but how many of you have news apps on your phone? Do you guys ever get like news notifications? And I kind of probably need to shut that off because sometimes it gets depressing. I mean, you get these like, hey, news alert, there was a, um, a, a shooting in Munich, Germany at a mall. Or, oh, news alert, there was uh, something going on in Turkey where, you know, many, many people are being killed and there's an overthrow and, and people are, you know, in disarray. News alert, there's, there's things happening all around the world. And we all know within the last month of what's happened in Minnesota in Louisiana, and the retaliation in Louisiana, and in Dallas, what happened with the police officers, and that there's a lot of heaviness and brokenness, and I don't think that any of you this morning would say, hey, the world is perfect. We all know that we live in a fallen world, and we see evidence of this in our community. Ariel and I live on the west side, kind of out by SeaWorld, and literally at every corner, every corner, there's homeless people. And they're begging and they're, they're asking for help. And they, you know, I drive, there's a bridge that I, I have to pass by on my way to my house and they're all underneath there. And if you stop and you talk to them, they'll tell you their life story. And it's just so, so sad when you hear about the, the levels of brokenness and the difficulties that they faced. And some of them have been dealt really difficult hands in life and had things that have happened to them that are really difficult. Some of them have, have, would tell you that they've made poor choices and are now living with those consequences. And maybe they've fallen prey to addiction. And there's this heaviness and this brokenness that we see in homelessness. Ariel and I had a, had a meeting. We met with a, uh, a representative of a foster care agency just learning about what's happening in our community and that there's 67 children in our pocket of San Antonio that slept in a social worker's office in the month of May because there was no family that would take them in. And there's brokenness and there's heaviness and there are these children that, that need homes to go to. 
Yesterday, I had the privilege to go to uh, the Bear County Jail with uh, a prison ministry called Behind the Walls. And man, it was so incredible to be able to go into the jail and to connect with these inmates and hear their stories and talk about the hope of Jesus, but to hear their brokenness. I don't think it was a coincidence that the, the morning before I was going to speak on the fall that I go into a jail and just experience the darkness and the brokenness and, and hear about their, their stories and how many of them have said, listen, you know, I, I grew up in a home where there was dysfunction or I was abused as a kid and I started making poor choices and I couldn't get out of it. And then we know this world that we live in is messed up. You know, one of the things I think that is is a major failure of the church is that a lot of times, and I'm sure it happens, I know it happens here at Stone Oak Bible, and it happens everywhere, that we gather together on Sunday mornings and we put our game face on. And we try to pretend that everything's okay and that life is good and we put on our Sunday best. I had a youth group kid tell me in Connecticut that her parents scolded her and said, when you go to church, you smile, and if you dare, if you dare tell anybody what's happening in our family, you're going to get it. Don't you dare, because we go to church and we pretend like everything's okay. And that's what a lot of us do. And that we, we have real things going on in our lives where there's brokenness, there's pain, there's stress, there's financial difficulties, there's marital hardships and struggles. And that we live in, in a broken world, but we also experience brokenness in our lives. And we know this world that we live in is messed up. And it's hard for me even today to stand up here because I'm messed up. And I have real issues that I struggle with and wrestle with, and all of us do. And why is that? Why do we live in this world with so many problems and it's so dysfunctional? Why are there homeless people? Why, if you go into the hospital, are there people dying of cancer? Why do we see children in poverty all over the world? What is going on? If you've been here with us at all the last two weeks, We've been talking about Genesis and, and studying the creation account and how God made everything. This incredible God that's bigger than we could ever even imagine and more powerful than our wildest imagination created everything out of nothing for his good pleasure. And, and it was amazing. And then yet last week we talked about how God made us in his image. And he created us in his image and likeness. And we see in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden in unparalleled sp splendor amidst the crystal waters and, and this, these lush forests of the Garden of Eden. And so everything is great. They're living in harmony with God. Adam and Eve's relationship is two people being in one flesh reflects the harmony of the Trinity being a one God and three persons. And so we see this beautiful picture of what life is supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. But then we live in our world today and we're like of us to not only understand ourselves, but to also understand God and our relationship with him and what went wrong and, and how it's fractured. And it's also imperative that we can begin to understand the world that we live in because people ask about this all the time. Why is there evil in the world? Why am I suffering? If God is good, then why is this happening to me? I mean, I'm sure almost all of you have either asked that question or have had people ask you that question. Where is God in the midst of all of this evil? And so we see again in Genesis chapter 2 that Adam and Eve, everything is right in the presence of God. And in verse 225, it says that they were naked and they felt no shame. The clothing had never even occurred to them. They had no idea that they were naked in the presence of each other. There was no guilt. There was no shame associated with that. The gravitational pull of self and their selfishness did not exist, and neither one of them was the center of his or her own life. 
life was as it should be. And so again, what went wrong? And we're going to turn, if you're, if you're not there already, please turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, God tells him, he says, listen, here is this beautiful garden that you guys have. Here's this beautiful gift that you have and enjoy it, delight in it. Have dominion over it, rule over it, eat from it. It is wonderful. Enjoy the Garden of Eden. But hey, there's one rule, one stipulation. There's this tree called the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Don't do anything associated with that tree. Leave it alone, but enjoy everything else. And really, when you think about it, I was talking, I had a conversation about this this week with some guys, and they said, you know what? That's really not that hard. And when you think about it, it's not unreasonable. Hey, everything is, is beautiful in the garden. You have these incredible trees, incredible plants you can enjoy and you can um, eat from, but just don't touch this tree. Really not that hard. Really not that difficult, and it's not unreasonable that, that God did that. Because God said, if you touch this, then surely you will die. So everything is great in the Garden of Eden, but then Genesis chapter 3 starts, and we see that right away, the serpent comes on the scene. It says, now the serpent was crafty. So the serpent comes on the scene, and who is this serpent? Well, if, if you, you look in Genesis 3 and you read through it, it doesn't really give us an explanation of who the serpent is. It doesn't, doesn't tell us who the serpent is. And as we talked about last week and many times before, that when we see something in Scripture, it's important that we go to other Scripture to understand what's happening. In Revelation, it, it says this, The great dragon who was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the serpent in the garden is Satan, or the devil. The word Satan means accuser or adversary, and the word devil means slanderer. Jesus calls Satan the evil one and the ruler of this world. The Pharisees refer to Satan as Beelzebul, or the prince of demons. Paul calls Satan the god of this age um, and the prince of the power of the air, and that Satan is on a mission. And Jesus tells us that Satan's mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. Peter says that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion trying to devour us. So we see the serpent right away in Genesis 3 starts coming around in the garden and he's on a mission and his mission is to, to destroy Adam and Eve, seeking someone to devour. Now scripture doesn't choose to expand on this and expound on this, but somewhere between the end of chapter 1 where God saw everything was very good and now in chapter 3, where Satan is now the adversary and accuser, somewhere between that, things went wrong. And Satan rebelled against God. And now Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 kind of unpack that a little bit. And I encourage you to write those down. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, look those up. And it uh, talks about the, the rebellion of, of, of Satan, this fallen angel who was the, the chief angel. He was the, the head archangel, beautiful, incredible angel but that he wanted to be like God, and he wanted to have equality with God. And so God cast him out of heaven, and here we see him in the garden on a mission to steal, kill, and destroy, seeking someone to devour. And now he begins taking on the form of a serpent, this full-fledged assault on humanity. And there's so much that we're going to unpack today in this chapter. There's, there's so much that we can't even possibly get to. But one of the things that we need to know and that all of us need to know is that we have this real enemy. Satan is real. He's alive. He's trying to devour us. And the Bible tells us, hey, flee from the devil 
and he will resist you. You need to resist the devil, he will flee from you. And that we need to, to be people who take a stand against the devil's schemes. Now, how do we stand against the devil's schemes? Well, we have to know how he works. You have to know how he works, and we see this in sports. You know, if somebody, if, you ever, if you're a sports fan at all, and you, you watch a game, there's a lot of scouting that goes into that game. Why? Because they want to know the strategy of their opponent. They want to know what their opponent's going to do so that they can be prepared and ready to go and attack that and have victory over their opponent. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us about Satan. That we have to know how he works, who he is, what he's going to do. And right away we see this in the garden because you're going to see that the things that Satan does in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve is what he does to us today. And he's a one-trick pony. His, his stuff has not changed. His, his antics and the way that he schemes and the way he works has not changed and is the same today. And so Satan immediately comes to Eve and causes doubt. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Satan immediately causes doubt of God's word and starts to plant doubt in her mind. Surely God didn't say that. Are you sure God said that? How do you know that God said that? Did he actually really truly say that, Eve? And what's so interesting and um, a lot of scholars have, have, you know, obviously studied this a lot and, and looked at the context and, um, and based on what God later says to the serpent about how it, the serpent is cursed to go on its belly, that this serpent um, isn't like a slithering snake, but maybe even kind of has legs. We don't really know exactly what this serpent looks like, but comes to Eve in a way where she's not startled. Doesn't come to her this over-dominating, you know, creature where that scares her. But he kind of comes to her in a crafty, conniving, cunning, sly little way where he begins to put seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. And what, that's important for all of us to know because if, you, if I were to tell you right now, hey, I want you to get an image in your head right now of the devil. What is it? What's the image you have right now in your devil, of the devil? And if it's like me, yeah, I see somebody in the back going like this. I think of that creepy little dude on Halloween that runs around like this, you know, that has a red face and these horns and this little tail with a pitchfork and is like, man, I'm the devil. You know, this like creepy looking little thing. And that's not what the devil is. The devil's sly and crafty and conniving and cunning and comes to her in this kind of unassuming way and begins to say, hey, did God actually say that? And he causes doubt of God's word and doubt of God's truth. And this is exactly what he does to us today. Is God really kind? Is God really good? Hey, hey, why are you struggling? If God really loves you, don't you think he'd want to provide for you? Hey, why are you sick? Why did this happen to you? Where is God in the midst of your problems? God's not even there. Is God really even there? How do you know the Bible's true? And he comes to us, and it's subtle. And I think you can all probably relate to this. How do you know Jesus is the only way? And there are these little seeds of doubt that he begins to plant in our minds, and it builds on each other. But the doubt isn't ultimately what, uh, what Eve, Eve right away gives into. As a matter of fact, you'll see that Eve says, hey, look, yeah, God did actually tell us not to do that. So the doubt really doesn't even, even work fully, but it begins to plant seeds in her mind. And then Satan switches tactics, and he changes gears, and then he begins to use deceit. And he says this, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Satan is called the father of lies and the great deceiver, and this is exactly what he's doing in the garden, bold-faced lying and completely denying the truth of God. And this is what's so important to know about our enemy, that his lies always, always promise great benefits. Always promise great benefits. Hey, if you do this, then you're going to be better off. And he tells Eve, hey, if you eat from this, then you're going to be like God, and your life is going to be even better than it is now. And I know, Eve, things seem to be going well for you, but hey, if you do this, then you're going to be as powerful as God is, and you're going to know good and evil, and it's going to be great. And his lies always promise great benefits. And what we're going to see today is that sin, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. <clears throat> and we see this absolutely everywhere. I, I know that, um, you know, there's the obvious ones of, of drugs. Hey, if you do this, then you're going to feel better. And hey, this is going to help you take away your problems. And if you need a relief, you know, just why don't you try this? And it'll help you relax, but then it ultimately it leaves you feeling empty and unsatisfied and wanting more. And, and, you know, you see the same thing with alcohol. Hey, if you need to just kind of take the edge off a little bit, you need to just unwind. Hey, have a glass of wine or, or drink a, a few beers and just kind of relax. And, and then we see this, obviously, with sex. Hey, oh, man, sex is what you need. You need to be in relationship, and you need to, you need to have a partner. And if you have a partner, then you're going to be satisfied, and, and you can find your satisfaction in these things, and then you pursue these things. But ultimately, they end up leaving you wanting more and unsatisfied. And I tell you what, I saw this in spades yesterday as I talked to these inmates who told me, you know what? You know, I got, I got mixed up a little bit in the wrong crowd, and people started to tell me to try things. And pretty soon, next thing I knew, I was addicted and I was hooked. And I would do anything I could. And there was a guy who, who was literally on the brink of tears yesterday telling me, you know what? I, uh, I don't even know. I get out on Tuesday. I don't know what I'm going to do because I, I uh, think I just burned a whole huge bridge with my family because I was addicted to drugs. And so I stole my father's tools and I sold my dad's tools. And he's broken and he's on the verge of tears, about ready to have this breakdown because he knows that he got caught in this cycle of sin and saying, hey, if you could only get high, then you're going to be okay. And oh, if you can only have this, then you're going to be okay. And it ended up leaving him empty and unsatisfied and wanting more. And, you know, all of us, all of us have experienced this to different degrees and maybe for you it's not drugs, maybe for you it's not sex, maybe for you it's not alcohol, but maybe it's this, these promises of, of power and success and popularity and wealth that you, you kind of hear these, these lies that say, hey, you know what, if you just had more money, everything's going to be okay. So do what you have to do to get money. And so we begin to maybe even work hard, which is a good thing, but sometimes it comes at the expense of our families. And we mortgage our families in the hopes that, hey, if we just have more money, then we're going to be happy later on in life. And we begin to pursue these things. Or, hey, some of us are told, you know what, you need, you need this money more than Uncle Sam does. So, so just kind of fudge the numbers on your taxes. And that's okay. No big deal. Nobody's really even going to know. And you're probably not going to get caught. And so it's okay. And there are these promises that we begin to, to see in these lies and deceit that you begin to buy into and say, you know what, oh, if I just have more money, then everything's going to be okay. And it can cause sin. And ultimately... I've talked to people who, are, who, who came from nothing and have experienced incredible wealth. And you know what they've said to me? Mike, it's never enough. 
And you always want more. And sin always overpromises prosperity, happiness, power, a pleasure, and it always underdelivers. So Satan causes doubt. Eve becomes to be deceived and buys the lie that he was selling by, or Satan was selling and willingly chooses to disobey God. And so she takes some of this fruit and she eats it. And what's so important to, to know in just looking at this text and kind of a quick little rabbit trail is that temptation is not a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted because she was tempted and first resisted it, but, but there weren't consequences and sin didn't enter into the world until she willfully took of it and ate it. Jesus was tempted and all of us experience temptation, but what's important is what we do with that temptation and to resist temptation. And James talks about that, resisting temptation and not allowing it to, to infiltrate our lives and giving into it because it'll breed sin. So Eve... So it says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Eve gives into the temptation and takes fruit and eats it. And where was Adam? Standing right next to her. This man that was supposed to be the leader, supposed to be the one that would take charge, is sitting here passive, this spineless oaf, just watching this happen. Instead of saying, hey, honey, you know what? We really shouldn't do that. You know, God said not to do that. Hey, why don't we do it? He's just along for the ride watching it. And then she gives some to him, and, and he eats it. And so the woman listens to the serpent. The man listens to the woman, and no one listens to God. And what we have now, instead of this order and instead of this harmony, we now see that there is dysfunction and there's chaos. Adam was just hanging out, and he was passive. Immediately upon their disobedience, this perfect world that they were living in was invaded by the presence of sin, and life as they knew it was no more. And there's four Hebrew words that are used in the Old Testament for sin that I just quickly want to give to you because I, I think it helps us kind of zero in on what sin is and understand the comprehensive nature of sin. The first one is chata, which means to miss the mark or to fail. And this term comes from archery, that you, there's a target you're supposed to hit and that you, you miss the mark. The second one is habar, which means to pass over or through and it comes to mean to overstep one's boundaries. And so Adam and Eve, by sinning, they overstepped their boundaries to go against God's commands or promises. Another one is pasa, which means to revolt or to rebel. And this is this willful disobedience that highlights this intentional uh, rebellion of sin, of sin, looking at God and saying, you know what, no. I'm going to turn the other way and I'm going to rebel against you. And the other one is hawa, which means to bend or to twist, or to per pervert. And so we see a depth of sin that misses the mark. It rebels, it is perverted, and it oversteps boundaries. And what we see in our text this morning is that sin disrupt, or fractured man's relationship with God and disrupted his perfect creation. Sin fractured man's relationship with God and disrupted his perfect creation. Adam and Eve followed Satan and bought into the lie that he was selling, and, and Satan achieved what he was after. And immediately, 
immediately upon their sinning, that God, their relationship with God was disrupted and fractured, and creation as a whole would never be the same. Scripture tells us through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Immediately, evil is now in the world, and everything that God saw was very good, was no longer very good because it was tainted by evil, and humanity was tainted and affected by the fall, and immediately their relationship with God was changed, and their harmony with God was disrupted because of sin. Where there was relationship, where there was harmony, where there was unity and peace, there's now disruption and chaos. In verse 225 and 3-7 are so key in understanding what happens here, and they're crucial to point out because both verses highlight the couple's nakedness but in two very different ways. 225 pictures the pinnacle of innocence and openness, that they were naked and that they felt no shame. And in 3.7, it describes them as guilty and ashamed of their nakedness and insecure. They were once naked and they, were, they felt no shame and here they are now naked and their eyes are open because of sin and they're scrambling to put clothes on to cover themselves up. And after they screwed up and rebelled against God, they, they weren't driven back to him and say, ooh, we're sorry, Oh, man, God, we really messed up. What do we do now? But instead, they hide from him, and they perpetuate the problem, and they're flooded with feelings of guilt. And now we see that they are afraid, and they're hiding, and they're insecure in the Garden of Eden. And it says that they hid from God. You know, I, I was reading and researching this text, and one commentator said, you know, sin just makes you dumb. Because here, Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. It's actually hilarious. They're hiding from God. They're hiding from God. And, and they, they go in and they cover themselves up and they go and they hide in the garden. And God, you know, I, I picture him kind of on his morning stroll through the Garden of Eden. And they used to just have this fellowship with him. And they used to love it and probably look forward to connecting with him and to talking with him. And now they're hiding from him and they're afraid of it. And what's so hilarious and just shows us the sense of humor of God he plays along. He's like, hey, where are you guys? He knows where, you are, where they are. You know, he's not, a, he, he's not playing a game of hide and seek. He knows exactly where they are. His, his GPS never gets lost, right? And so he, he, he knows exactly where Adam and Eve are, but he says, hey, where are you guys? Where are you guys? And then they respond, and they're like, hey, well, we knew we were naked, and we sinned. And God says, hey, well, how do you know you're naked? And immediately, immediately, they're flooded with feelings of guilt and shame, and they no longer have this harmony and unity with God. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they not only lost God's bountiful provision of the garden, but more importantly, God's provision of unhindered fellowship with himself, the only source of true life and fulfillment. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, their relationship with God was fractured. And we have to explain why this is, that God is holy and he's perfect and he's without sin. He's completely without sin. God is completely good and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And we see this in the Old Testament in spades that God is not, sin is not allowed to come into God's presence. And there's so many times even in, in the Old Testament where people would try to get in the presence of God in an in a, in a, in a, uh, unworthy manner and they would be struck dead. And he cannot be in the presence of sinful uh, humans. And so here is sinful man. And when they sinned, this relationship of God was fractured. And there's nothing that they could do about it. There was nothing that they could do about it. They couldn't say, you know what, God, we won't do that again. Can you just pretend that that never happened? 
or oops, can we rewind in time? God, can you go back in time and give us a do-over? But this relationship with God was fractured, and they can no longer be in this relationship with him, and they're completely broken and bankrupt and destitute. There's nothing that man could do to reverse the fall. And, and what's so interesting is Romans tells us that in addition to that, not only is their relationship with God fractured, but this sin by Adam and Eve, this sin that entered into the world affected all of creation. In chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know now that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The sin of man it was transferred to all creation. Everything is now tainted. That's why animals suffer. That's why animals die. That's why plants die. That's why this world that we live in has so many problems. Is that sin was transferred to all of creation. And now this creation that God saw was very good is now tainted by evil and marks marked by sin, which leads us to our second point, that sin has tremendous consequences. Immediately in that instant, Adam and Eve knew that something wasn't right. Scripture says their eyes were open, and now they're aware of evil. They're no longer innocent. They're no longer innocent, but now they're skewed and marked by sin. And last week, we talked about how all of us are made in the image of God and what that means and the implications of how we're made to be like God and his image and likeness. And we looked at different characteristics of that. If, if you remember, we, we talked about how we as people have capacity for relationship because we're made in the image of God and to be made like him. And now that capacity for relationship is marked by sin. And we no longer have the capacity to be in perfect relationship with God or with each other. Adam and Eve were now skewed rationally, and their way of thinking is now flawed. They're now skewed morally, and this moral compass of knowing what is right and doing good is now skewed, and, and it's all messed up. They're now skewed emotionally, and instead of being able to only feel good, they're now able to feel evil because of sin, and they're flooded with, immediately with evil feelings of, of guilt and insecurity. And they're now tainted spiritually instead of an eternal destiny with God. Their fate is eternally sealed because of their sin. Imagine what Adam and Eve must have felt like. I mean, the very first time in that instant when they were flooded with sin. Imagine what they felt like when they got their first mosquito bite. I wonder if there were now fire ants in the Garden of Eden. We, uh, we had to clean out our car seat this morning, and we actually left it on the driveway overnight, and it was rampant with fire ants this morning. When we went and we picked it up to, to clean it out and put it on the van, in the van, there were fire ants everywhere. Imagine what they felt like when they first got bit by, you know, stung by a bee, or an animal attacked them. Imagine what they felt like when they had their first argument, in which we see right away in, in chapter 3, there's all sorts of consequences that happen right away in an instant because of sin. And sin starts to flood over into every area of their life. And what's so apparent here in chapter, in chapter 3 is this relational discord that starts to happen. And in chapter 2, it's amazing because, you know, God comes to Adam and says, hey, we're going to find a helpmate for you. And he brings him all these animals and nothing was suitable for him. And so then he makes woman and Adam looks at woman and he's like, oh man, 
She's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she'll be called woman, for she's taken out a man, and the two are one flesh, and it's wonderful, and they're in the Garden of Eden, and they're loving each other and, and loving life, and he's so happy that he has Eve. But now after sin, it's, it's crazy to see this just comparison and this juxtaposition of him looking at God and saying, hey, when God says, hey, well, what happened? He's like, that woman. Instead of now, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's that woman you gave me, God. You did it. God, why are you looking at me to blame me? That woman. And there's relational discord. And instead of them experiencing this unity as one flesh, they're now broken and marked by sin. And their relationship will never be the same. And there's tremendous consequences. Sin causes chasms in this perfect relationship that man not only shares with God, but with each other. And so because of their sin and because of their willful disobedience, God punishes them. And he looks at the serpent first and he says, hey, you're going to be cursed above all livestock. And you're going to go onto your belly. And there will be enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And we're going to come back to this in a second. But then he turns to the woman and says, hey, because you sinned, there's consequences. And you're going to experience tremendous pain in childbirth. I'm sure some of you ladies can totally relate to that. And that there's going to be a struggle now, a relational struggle, instead of this harmony uh, of this ruling between man and woman, and they're going to be um, struggling because of sin. And then to Adam, he says, hey, the ground is now cursed because of you, and you're going to toil, and you're going to labor, and there's thorns and thistles, and you're going to be struggling for the rest of your life, and you're going to experienced death because of sin, and he expelled them from the Garden of Eden and required them to work the ground. And God placed angels around the Garden of Eden to secure it and to guard it and to protect it so they could never again go back. There are immediate consequences for what they've done, and there's consequences we face today. And as I started by saying, people often ask this, why are there so many bad things in the world? Why is there evil in the world? Where's God in the midst of this? And why are these things happening? And this is the reason. is because sin is in the world. One man sinned, and sin entered into the world, and now it runs rampant throughout creation. And what, what Scripture tells us is that now we as human beings have a sin nature, and that we're by our very nature objects of wrath, and that we're born into sin, and there's nothing we can do about it. We live in a sinful and fallen world. And sin doesn't give you any relief, but it constantly perpetuates itself, and we're born into this. And if you've been around any little kid, you know you don't have to teach them to sin. It's so true. I mean, it's so crazy. I remember the first time I, I saw this, and I was kind of taken aback when I looked at my daughter when she was like, I think right around a little over one years old, and I said, hey, kiddo, can you sit there? And she's like, no. I was like, wait, what? And it's because she has a sin nature. I didn't teach her to do that. But that we're now born into sin and we're stuck in this sin. And there's things that we deal with every day as a result of this sin. Stress. Before, we, 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 before sin, there was no stress. There was no embarrassment. There was no shame. There was no anger. There was no frustration. There was no discouragement. No sadness. No grief. No injustice. Before sin, there was no poverty. There was no abuse. There was no financial problems. Can you imagine that? No financial problems. There was no relationship issues. Before sin, there was no disobedience. There was no pressure that we felt. There was no loss. There was no hunger. There was no thirst. There was no marital strife and discord. 
There's no divorce before sin. There's no sickness. There's no cancer. There's no illness. There's no death. And now in an instant, everything has changed. And this all at once has flooded into the world. But greater than all of the physical, relational, and social implications of sin are the eternal consequences of sin. Sin eternally separates us from God. And Romans says, for the wages of sin, the penalty for our sin is death. And this is now very real, inevitable consequence for Adam, that they are now going to die. And in an instant, because they disobeyed his commands, everything has changed and there's nothing that they can do about it. And that we as people are absolutely broken, that we're bankrupt, and that we're destitute. And now, I don't know about you this morning. I don't know where you're at on your journey and, and spiritually or, or how you're feeling as you're sitting here this morning. But for me, I'm just going to be completely transparent for a minute. I have no problem seeing my sin. I don't know if you can identify with me, but there are times I, I just feel the weight of my sin. And I feel this, feel this heaviness and this brokenness and this burden of my sin. And, and it just is so weighty and it's so dark. And don't get me wrong. Don't miss me. I don't want you to be thinking this morning like, what did he do? Oh, my goodness. Like, what's wrong with Mike? By the world's standards, I, I may be pretty okay. But you feel this heaviness, this brokenness of your sin. And have you ever felt that? Have you ever looked and felt, man, I am so Ugly. It is so ugly, and there's so much darkness, and they're so broken, and you're so broken. And Paul even says in Romans, hey, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? And you feel it, and it's palpable, and it's tangible, and we can feel the consequences of our sin. And Adam and Eve are now separated from God. They're bankrupt. They're destitute. They're broken, and there's nothing that they can do about it. And you know what, friends? In the midst of our, our sin and our weight and our brokenness, there is nothing that we on our own can do about it. There's nothing that we can do to try to reach this God. That's why when people say, hey, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, you know what? If you compare yourself to other people, you might be okay, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And your, your metric isn't comparing yourself to sinners, but it's comparing yourself to holiness. And on the grand scheme of holiness, you fall way short, and there's nothing you can do to reach this God by yourself. But what's so incredible, friends, what's so amazing about this account, and even at the very beginning, in the midst of our sin, God offers hope of restoration. In the midst of our sin, God offers hope of restoration. And after cursing the physical serpent, God turns to the spiritual serpent, or Satan, and he curses him. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her, her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy that we see in the Bible. And this is, um, this is so incredible and, and important for us to see. The woman's offspring referred to as he is Jesus Christ, who would one day defeat the serpent. And Satan could only bruise Jesus' heel, which means he would cause him to suffer, but that Jesus would bruise his head and destroy him with a fatal blow. That decisive blow was struck by the perfect offspring of the woman, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross and rose again victorious three days later. And this is so amazing and, and encouraging to see. I mean, when you think about the fall of man, I mean, it's heavy. It's, we're broken and we see this sin and talk about sin in the world, the effects of sin. But what's so incredible about this is that right away, right away, Satan gets Adam and Eve to fall. And he's probably like, yes, I've done it. Their fate is sealed. They're done. 
They're done. I got them to fall. I, I, I'm out on a mission to steal, kill, and destroy. And even in the midst of this, he looks at our great accuser who's accusing us before God, and he offers hope. And he says, I will make all things new, and Satan, you are going to, to be defeated. In his letter to Colossians, Paul says, the record of debt that stood against us, God set, or Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is what God prophesies in the garden, and this is the reason that we have hope today. When, when, when Jesus died for our sins, Satan, our great accuser, was disarmed and defeated, and the one eternal destructive weapon that he had was now stripped from his hand, namely his accusation before God that we are guilty and should perish with him. When Jesus died, that ac accusation was nullified in all of us who believe in Jesus, will now never perish. Satan cannot separate us from the love of God within Jesus. And, you know, I, as we talk about this and we think, hey, what are our implications? And what are the implications of the fall of, of man? And what are the implications of sin? There's, there's two application pieces that I, I'm, I don't do this every day. I need to, that I need to preach to myself every day. And the first one is that I'm more sinful than I could ever even imagine. I'm more sinful than I could ever even imagine. That you and I, we are, are completely bankrupt and that sin, we see like right away, immediately after Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God, there are these tremendous consequences. And you see throughout scripture that sin just snowballs and perpetuates itself. And they not only disobeyed God, but the next thing they know, they're fighting with each other, they're blaming each other. And there's just this cesspool of sin that we live in. And that we are more sinful than we could ever even imagine. And there's this prevailing philosophy of today that man is, is good. And that, oh, he's a good guy. You know, on the news a while back, there was a guy who, who murdered three people and hit them in the basement. And they, they interviewed the neighbors. And they said, hey, how, well, tell, tell us about, you know, Jim. What was he like? And they said, well, he was a good man. We never, we never would have did anything like this. We can't imagine that he would do anything like this because he's a good person. But the Bible tells us that there is no one righteous. There's not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. And the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? There is a level of the depth of our sin that we cannot wrap our minds around, that we are totally depraved. You know, I was reading, and there was a survey of 300 pastors who, who had a moral failure, and they asked them, you know, a series of questions. And one thing that they all had in common was they said that it would never happen to them. It would never happen to them. They could never picture themselves doing that because they would never sin that much or they would never get to that point. Yesterday, you know, in jail, we talked to literally there were 3,800 some inmates. And I guarantee you, if you got a chance to sit down and talk to them and ask them, they would say, I don't know how I ended up in here. I never saw myself going to jail. I don't know why I'm, I'm here but that we are more sinful than we could even imagine. And if we tell this to ourselves all the time, it's important that we say that because we need to be on our guard that there is nothing as sinful people that we're not susceptible to. 
And that's why we have to have boundaries. That's why the Bible says to take a stand against the devil's schemes, to resist the devil, because we will fall prey to sin, and we will continue to fall prey to sin, that we are more sinful than we could ever even imagine. This is why there are these horrible stories happening. This is why policemen are shot. This is why there's racial profiling. This is why there's all of these things happening in the world is because we are more sinful than we could ever even imagine. But what this also tells us, and in this story, and in the Garden of Eden, we see, we see that we are more loved than we could ever even hope for. That we're more sinful than we could ever even imagine, but that we are more loved than we could ever even hope for. That this incredible God, who's the maker, sustainer of all things, who's bigger than we could even imagine, loves us more than we could ever even imagine. And here we see that in the Garden of Eden, that even in the midst of our brokenness, God offers hope. And what I, I was talking to Ariel about this, my wife, and it was just, it's crazy. I mean, it really is crazy. Why did God make us in his image? I don't know. Why did God give us the privilege out of everything that he made in creation, things that appear to be a lot more credible, incredible than me, why did he want this relationship with me? I don't really know. I just know that he did because his word says so. Why did God, in the midst of my sin and in the midst of our brokenness, why did he not just say, you know what, forget it. They're done. I'm, I'm done with them. I don't want them anymore. They rebelled against me. Forget it. I'm just going to wipe them out. I don't know why he didn't do that. I have no idea, but I know that he loves us and that he loves us more than we could ever even imagine. And Paul says this to the letter in in, um, the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Jesus and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God that even in the midst of our our sin and our brokenness and our bankruptcy, God loves us and showed us that love by sending his son, Jesus. The God who's even bigger than we could ever even imagine loves us more than we could ever even imagine. And even though I'm more sinful than I could ever imagine, I'm more loved than I could ever hope for. And I want to read to you two scriptures of Paul. The first one in Romans chapter 5, it really explains the gospel. And if you, if you kind of want to know more about struggling with sin and what sin is like and the effects of sin and having victory over sin, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are incredible chapters that unpack this well. In Romans 5, it says, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. And I I talked with a guy this week who said, you know what, in the Garden of Eden, they only had one thing. Only one thing that they they shouldn't do, and and they did it and they screwed up on. And only one thing made the whole world go wrong by eating of the tree. 
But you know what's so crazy is now we only have to do one thing to make everything right, and that is saying yes to Jesus Christ and trusting in him to do for me what I cannot do for myself and trusting in him to save us from our sin and to rescue us. And as Paul says, as I alluded to before, he says, but I see another law at work in my body, warring against the law of my mind and holding me captive to the law of sin that dwells within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That in the midst of while we were yet sinners, even in the midst of our brokenness in the Garden of Eden, God says, yes, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to promise hope for restoration. And Jesus is going to come back. And Brandon, if you and the team want to come up this morning, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to restore and make all things new. And he's going to make right this chasm that was caused by our sin. And he's going to make all things new with the new heaven and a new earth. And that we're able to have this right relationship with God. And there is nothing that we can do by ourselves to achieve this only by saying yes to Jesus. And so this morning, that's why we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Is It's a reminder of the fact that, that we are sinful, that we're separated from this holy and perfect God. And what we could not do for ourselves, God did for us by sending his son, Jesus. And that even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our shame, even in the midst of our guilt and our sin, God offers hope. And if you're a believer in Jesus and you've trusted in him and said, yes, Jesus, I trust in you to save me from my sins, we invite you. You don't have to be a member here. You don't have to be a regular attender here, but if you've said yes to Jesus, we invite you to come and enjoy communion with us today. And the gluten-free uh, option is in the back for our gluten-free friends. Um, and encourage you to, as we sing this song about um, coming to Christ for who he is and what he's done and asking him and trusting in him to save us from our sins and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, we remember and celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge our sin, our brokenness, this world that we live in that's empty and bankrupt and broken and fallen. And we feel the consequences of our sin every day. But Lord, as Paul says, who is gonna rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, Lord, we thank you, we remember you, and celebrate you today as we join together by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Amen.